Well, good morning, church. It's a great time to be a Bible-believing Christian, as always, but even now, more so, we have so much more scientific evidence which confirms Scripture, and so we're going to look at some of that here today. But let me open this up in prayer first. Say, thank you, Father Lord, for today, for your day of the week. We can come here and be refreshed and renewed to get through each week. Just thank you for how you give us these minds to be able to conceive in some way, some limited way, the marvels of what you have done and how you bless us through it. So thank you for this time, this opportunity, and this material will be understood and shared with others to help bring other people who do not yet know you to you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so butterflies. Uh, first, I want to talk, start with some basic points that I repeat often because they are so important that they cannot be said too frequently. That the battle is not a battle between scripture and science. That's a false argument that the evolutionists put forth to lead us away from the main situation. And this is a battle between two belief systems. Evolution is a belief system. It's actually a religion. It's a man-made belief system. But it's based on man's ever-changing word, which has to change as we find more and more new evidence that confirms even more so what Scripture has to say. The other is God's unchanging word, which is eternal and which is true from the very first to the very last word. So everyone has presuppositions or assumptions that we use to decipher what we're looking at. Evolutionists presuppose, presume, no God, no guide, no plan, no purpose. I presuppose that God's word is true and is used to interpret what's going on in the world and that it is totally reliable. Science does confirm scripture when it's properly interpreted because after all, the author of the word is the author of the world. He's one and the same, and he does not contradict himself. There are many unstated assumptions in the evolutionary way of thinking, and one of the most basic ones is this concept of uniformitarianism. So the root of that word is uniform, meaning the same, and so uniformitarianism refers to this doctrine that all processes have been going on in the past at the same rate that we observe them or measure them today. So that, for example, they assume that the rate of radioactive decay has always been the same in the past. Say the rate of erosion of material out of the Grand Canyon has always been the same in the past at, as the rate at which we measure it today, and so on. Well, we know this isn't true, but that's a basic assumption of how they look at things. Another assumption is materialism, that all there is is matter and energy and that there is nothing supernatural. In other words, no God of the Bible. The age of the earth is an uh, absolutely crucial point. Evolutionists understand this better than many Christians because if they can cause doubt in the first chapter or the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then why bother with the rest of the book? So that's why often they focus their attack on Scripture, uh, that first chapter, in those first 11 chapters. But that leads to the real issue, and the real issue is the authority of Scripture. 
that God's word is the ultimate truth and it does not change. It is not relative. It is absolute truth. Let's turn to Job here. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Well, butterflies aren't mentioned per se in this uh, quote in which God himself is talking to Job directly. But uh, we'll, we'll know, we know that they're included in that. So here we have this rebellious teen butterfly that said, I had them all removed. So just the opposite of people getting tattoos here. All right, so here we see one that indeed did remove its spots, its colors. Of course, it didn't do it. It was a mutation, a mutation in the DNA that led to loss of information. So this is a change of losing information causing the loss of the coloration of the wings. So it's not evidence for evolution. Evolution, they say, mutations are what are the engine of evolution that lead to things getting more complex and having more development higher upward. But actually, it's just the opposite. Mutations cause loss of information. And so in this case, the information that causes the color to appear was lost. And we do see such a credible range of colors in butterflies. So the question is, how does that happen? Well, in other organisms, whether we see here whether it's people or birds or insects, beetles, crabs, fish, dogs, snakes, frogs, in other words, all the various types of animals, it's chemistry, it's pigmentation, such as pigments that we put in paint when we paint walls. It's chemistry. But in the case of butterflies, it's not chemistry, it's physics. It's not chemistry, it's not pigmentation, it's physics. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a closer and closer look and magnify the structures in the wing of a butterfly. And these are pictures that are taken with an electron microscope. In other words, instead of using light through a microscope, it's a beam of electrons so that the images are far, far more magnified than what we can see using a light microscope. And so as we look at this, we see these portions of the wing, the structures in the wing, and then blow that up and get further magnification. And now you see there's this extremely fine microarchitecture. And so it's how these structures refract and bend the light and then reflect light. That's what determines the colors that are seen in the wings of the butterfly. So it's not chemistry, it's physics. And so here you see a prism refracting the light, causing the colors of the rainbow to occur, just like the raindrops in the sky when we have the sun shining in one part of the sky and the clouds giving us rain in another part of the sky. Those raindrops act like this prism, and that's how we get the rainbow, is refracting the light like that. So in this case, the colors other than what you see here are absorbed. In other words, the, the greens and the yellows, and the, well, not so much yellows, the greens and the blues are absorbed, and the more red and yellow end of the spectrum is what's being bounced back, and that's what we actually see. 
So here you see a representation of that microarchitecture. And so in this case, with the blue wing, you see the magnification here. And so it's the blue light that is bounced back or reflected and the other colors are absorbed. Or in the case of this yellow, uh, yellowish or more chartreuse colored wing, that's the color that's, that is uh, reflected there that we see. The rest of it uh, we don't see. Well, so that brings us to the question, how do butterflies see? And notice this one, very interesting uh, camouflage technique here with these what look like eyes to make it appear it might be part of a much larger creature to deter uh, attackers such as birds that would eat it. So here are the pair of eyes on the head of the butterfly. And one eye has many, many thousands of lenses. These are called compound eyes. And so you see here the magnification showing with greater magnification the details of these compound lenses so that these thousands of lenses together make the one eye. And they are built so that they absorb the light through the end here. And they're arranged in these patterns, as you see on the right-hand side, where some of them are at 90 degrees to the rest of them. So that's why you see the orange and the blue arrows there, indicating the different directions at which they receive the light. And so this is how butterflies, as well as uh, honeybees and other insects, can see the polarization of the light. Now, we can't perceive it with our eyes, but light is polarized. And if you've done any photography and used a polarized lens, you see how that clears out the haziness in the sky and makes it look nice and crisp and more blue. So this ability to see the polarization of the sunlight is one of the things that uh, they use in terms of their navigation. So what we see is on the left-hand side, what the butterfly sees with that polarization is on the right-hand side. So they see things differently than we do. It's rather remarkable. Well, in flowers, God has built into flowers patterns and designs that will attract these pollinating insects with the business of being able to see the polarization of light. So it's very interesting that what we see looks like lavender, but what they see has this more bluish color and it has this particular pattern. It's almost like a target, like here, come here, right here. Well, how do butterflies smell? Well, we could take this two ways. What do they smell like and, and how do they perceive odors? Well, they smell with their antennae. And so you see that long antenna there with the, with the expansion of it, the widening of it on the end there. And this is very complex structure. And these are this electron, micrograph, electron microscope set of pictures, electron micrographs, showing the ultrastructure, the very fine structure. This is a very complex, complicated structures. These are things that just cannot evolve by random chance events. They have to have been designed, which means a designer, which would be the god of the Bible. And how do butterflies taste? Well, I don't know. I've never eaten one. But let's see 
uh, how they perceive taste, and that is in a way that you wouldn't want to, and that's through the feet. So they perceive taste with their feet. So the tarsus refers to that very distal portion of the, of the uh, leg there, the foot, and that's where these sensory cells are that, that pick up the, the molecules for the sense of taste and then change that into electrical uh, signal that then is transmitted to the brain so that they are literally tasting with their feet. So then the nerve goes on to the brain and uh, that's how they do that. So <laughs> here's the fellow with his dog and his dog's got the gas mask on and he says, she says my feet stink. What do you think, Goldie? So uh, I'm glad we don't have to use our feet to taste things. Well, what do butterflies eat? Well, most people think of these things such as nectar, sugar water, juice, you know, tree sap, something with sugar in it. Well, they also eat mud. And you say, why? Well, that's to get minerals that they need for their uh, chemistry in their cells. And some of them actually eat fungi as well. That way they can get some of the uh, organic uh, molecules, proteins, as well as pollen being a source of protein as well. And then here, the very interesting uh, particular species, the harvester butterfly, will uh, deal with these aphids here. It's a cannibal eating aphids. You may remember aphids are the insects that ants actually farm, and, and the aphids uh, secrete a very sweet, milky substance, and, and so uh, that's what they're going after. And then other organic material, uh, and here is part of a dead frog that this butterfly is feeding off of as well. It's a, down here at the bottom, you can see the legs extending off to the right. So it's not always that nice little sweet dainty thing that you think of like sap or sugar water or nectar that they eat. And even feces of other insects. They'll even feed on that to get that organic material. So it's not so always so sweet and delicate as you think. Now here, let's uh, focus more on just the monarch butterfly and the milkweed plant. There's some 40 different species of milkweed on the planet. And th this is the main uh, plant that the, milk, the monarch deals with. Uh, so they take the nectar uh, from the milkweed and the, the, the milkweed puts out this chemical uh, called cardinalide and this has this particular structure and then oleanders, uh, I, there's a hedge of oleanders as we drive into town here and they have a very similar molecule called oleandrin and then well, there's a plant that you may have heard of, or at least a product that the plant has, digitalis. And so these very, all very similar molecules have the effect on the heart. And we use digitalis to give to people who have congestive heart failure. The muscle isn't able to pump as well as it needs to 
And so digitalis, uh, through mechanism involving uh, the effect on pumps that involve the amount of calcium in the cell, caused the heart to be able to pump more strongly. Well, in a small appropriate dose, this is great. But in the higher doses that uh, critters or people would be exposed to, uh, this is toxic and, and can kill. And so with this molecule, this cardinalide that the butterfly has in its body, it doesn't affect the butterfly at all, but it makes the butterfly toxic to whatever wants to eat it, such as a bird. So if a bird tries to eat one monarch, it's not going to try to eat another one if it survives. It will leave them alone. So it's very interesting. It doesn't affect the butterfly, but, it, but whatever wants to eat the butterfly is seriously affected. And just as a Note of caution about oleanders, they have these fantastically straight, strong branches that are uh, unbranched, that are great for putting a marshmallow or a hot dog on for roasting, but don't do it because that oleandrin in that branch, along with any other part of that plant, is toxic and I've actually had to treat a couple patients who did that kind of a thing, who um, ended up with this molecule affecting their proper uh, heart function. So, as I said, the milkweed is a very central plant to the life of the monarch, and so here is uh, one uh, female uh, on the plant, and then she's laid an egg on the underside of the leaf here uh, so that uh, it's going to uh, grow and develop and become a caterpillar. And so there it is. Uh, that's the first stage is the egg. So then it hatches out and grows to become a caterpillar. So there's the monarch caterpillar and so this is the larval stage so from egg to the larval stage and these are voracious eaters they eat non-stop the only time they stop to eat is when they shed their skin when they molt because they've outgrown the skin they have and then they that will split and then fall off and then they continue to grow and start eating right away again and so they go chomp 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 all the time and so he says, go easy on him, Cedric. We were or destructive at that age, too. Uh, so that's what the caterpillar does, eats, eats, and eats. And so here you see an actual one chomping down on this plant here, milkweed plant. So even the caterpillars have this cardinalite in their bodies as well as the adults. And so there it is, just chomping away. This when it reaches its uh, full size, it will weigh 27,000 times greater than the egg that was laid. Well, when it's, when it's ready to then go through the next stage, uh, to enter into the pupal stage, so egg, larva, and then pupa, it chooses a place where it's going to be able to hang freely with nothing touching it from any direction. It spins this little pad of silk that is very sticky and sticks to the branch that it's chosen and then with the, the hindmost pair of legs it latches onto that pad so here's the pad you see and then it starts doing pull-ups like so this j-shaped form of, of doing pull-ups and then so that skin starts splitting and then it as you can see here it's uh, going to, to ride up as it then finally ends up in a ring around that last pair of legs. Then this amazing thing happens. This 
like spear-like structure comes out of the abdomen and then you can see these very fine protrusions on that uh, spear-like structure. They stick into the silk and then it lets go with the hind legs and then that ring of uh, skin then falls to the ground so that there's nothing touching it whatsoever. Isn't that amazing? So then, as that, after that uh, skin has fallen off, the outside layer that remains, outer layer that remains, hardens and becomes the chrysalis. So the pupa is inside the chrysalis here. So the chrysalis refers to the outside shell and the pupa is the critter inside. Well, everything inside then, except for the heart, dissolves. It turns into green jello. So that solid body that was the caterpillar becomes green jello. The heart is the one thing that remains intact. And everything else is a bunch of goo. So all of those cells rearrange into the adult form. And all of that information is in the DNA. So then, when that rearrangement has finished occurring, it's ready for the adult to come out. So it goes from the egg to the larva, the caterpillar, to the pupa in the chrysalis, and now to the adult. So the adult then emerges and hangs there for quite a while so that uh, fluid can fill the veins and the wings so that they can become stiff. And they don't need any help from anybody to help them get out of that. And actually, if anybody touches them, it damages the wings and then they'll end up starving to death because they won't be able to fly properly uh, because of that contact. That's why they must have no contact at all. So then it's hung there long enough for the wings to become stiff to be able to fly. And then it flies off and finds a milkweed plant. And it's going to start all over again, this cycle. Well, they don't stay in just one spot. They migrate, like the birds do. So there are two great migrations in the eastern and the western part of the US. Uh, and they both head south for the winter, down to those tropical areas. And it's been shown that the very same group of butterflies will go back to the very same location, the very same grove that their ancestors were in the previous year, both uh, down south and up north. How do they do that is a big question. So the question is, how do monarch butterflies fuel their migration? Well, they survive on uh, the energy stores in their bodies. They store uh, fat in their tails. And they uh, have uh, reserves there, so they're able to fly a long way. They also will refuel on flowers along the way uh, if they're available. So how do they migrate during migration? Well, I mentioned one of the aspects is that polarization of light. They're able to use that for direction uh, sensing. Another thing is they have some atoms of iron inside cells inside their brain, 
and they're able to use that to sense the magnetic field of the planet and use that like a compass for uh, determining proper direction as well. And as I mentioned, the business of the polarization of the light helps them to know if they're still on course or not. And they have a little clock inside that tiny little brain that helps them know what the angle of the sun should be for the, for the time of the year, for the season, so that they can compensate for how the sun moves as the season uh, changes and still be able to know what direction they're supposed to go. I mean, it's, it's just simply astounding how they do this. And then, how do they know their destination? How do they know that's where they're supposed to go? Well, all I can say is God just puts that information there. That's, that's, that's the only thing we can say. Well, one year, uh, some years ago, my wife and I were most fortunate. We had no clue what we were stumbling into, but we just happened to be at Pacific Grove near Monterey in California when this happened when this massive collection of millions of these butterflies were there, and we literally just walked into it having no clue <laughs> that that was going to be the case. And uh, so, uh, except for the one photo this way, they're all supposed to be vertical. I just couldn't put them all on the same slide, keeping them all vertical. But they literally hang on each other and form these curtains of butterflies. Well, it just, it's an astounding sight. It's an amazing thing. And then in the, in the fall, they go back down to the uh, tropical areas and, and go to, to the very same grove that their ancestors came from. So you can see they're very social in those curtains. But this one says, I'm really shy, you see. I guess I'll never be a social butterfly. So how do they know when to start their fall and spring migrations? Well, it's again, there's a clock built into them that says, now it's time to go. So we have here the life cycle of the butterfly, the egg, to the larva, the caterpillar, and then to the pupa in the chrysalis, and then finally the adult emerges. So this is uh, actually a, a pretty good picture for what can happen in people. Because in 2 Corinthians it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when a person comes to faith in Jesus having paid the price for my sins and everybody else's by shedding his blood on the cross, and when I come to faith in that and believe that fully and then change my direction, from being going away from Christ to going toward Christ, that's what repent means, to change direction. Then, when I did that, I became a new creature, and that God makes available to every one of us if we choose to accept that gift that was paid for at such a high price. So we are a new creation when we come to faith in Christ. So this picture with the butterfly, with emerging from that chrysalis, and coming out in an adult form instead of this caterpillar that's just kind of creeping along, I think is a very nice picture of what happens with us when we come to faith. So that's the end of the butterfly talk. Okay, we'll do woodpeckers. 
So Noah says in the rowboat, next time we leave the woodpeckers behind. Okay, so where does the woodpecker store its tongue? It's actually anchored in the right nostril. The right nostril. And you go, what? It's an amazing thing. It's totally different than anything else. So you see that very long tongue. It has to have some place to put it when it's retracted back into the mouth. So it, in a sense, it rolls it up and it's based in the right nostril. So how in the world does the woodpecker's tongue move inside its head? So there you see, it's got that very long tongue to be able to go through the hole it's drilled in the bark and to go back down behind the bark to look for insects. Or I should say, feel for insects. And then here's another one with its tongue way out there. Well, here's, here's how this works. It's amazing. The tongue has the left and the right have, halves, and as it goes back in, it unzips the left and right halves, and they move under the scalp, between the scalp and the skull. And so on the right-hand part, you see the top view of the head, where, it's, where it has split, and then where it anchors there in the right nostril. So that tongue then extends out, coming around both sides under the scalp, and then the two halves reunite in the mouth and then extends out. I'll bet you didn't see that one coming. <laughs> now, ask yourself, how in the world could this system have evolved from any other kind of bird and still have the woodpecker be able to feed and survive in the meantime? It's not possible. Well, it has some other features that are unique as well, such as it has barbs on the end of the tongue so it can spear that insect behind the bark. And it also has sensory nerves so that it knows that what it's coming in contact with is an insect and not some loose piece of bark or something else. It also has a gland that puts out a glue so that, that insect doesn't fall off when it brings it up back from behind the bark and into the mouth. Well then, since it's glued on, it has to have another gland that makes another molecule that dissolves the glue so it doesn't choke when the insect is in its mouth. So it has to have another gland that dissolves the adhesive. So how do these things evolve from other kinds of birds and still be able to survive in the meantime? Well, what about the beak itself? It's very tough. It's like a jackhammer. And here are some electron micrograph pictures of the different layers of the beak that are designed that make it very hard and able to sustain all that battering that it does against the, the tree. Tremendous architecture, microarchitecture here. Well, then that brings us to the question, how is the brain not damaged? Why is the brain not bashed to bits while this 
bird is hammering away on the beak. Well, for many, many, many decades, it was assumed that there were some kind of shock absorbers between the beak and the skull or the skull and the brain. Well, it turns out that that's not true. That's now been disproven, but now we have no clue how the brain is protected. None, no understanding. So here you see woodpeckers going at it against the tree. And he's kind of dazzled here, dazed. So then he goes and buys a drill from Peter's Hardware and says, and if you so much as snicker, I'll pick you a new set of tonsils. All right. So what features of the eyes and neck does a woodpecker have that, that defy evolution? Because you have to think, all right, if this bird is doing this at 15 times per second, 15 times per second, what kind of muscles does it have and the control of those muscles to be able to go back and forth 15 times a second? I can't even move my hand that fast. It's astounding, absolutely astounding. And the other thing is, it closes its eyes while it's drilling so the eyes literally don't fly out of the sockets. And you say, well, why would we say that? Well, it's because the force of gravity, it's a thousand times the force of gravity. A thousand Gs. Well, you know, when our, when our uh, pilots and astronauts uh, go into these ex really steep dives or fast acceleration on the rockets to get, get into orbit, you know, th they're dealing with 10 Gs, maybe a little bit more, and, you know, after that, then you pass out. And these are drilling it. 1,000 Gs, 15 times a second. It's astounding. So that's why it closes its eyes, so it doesn't lose its eyeballs. Well, what about its uh, claws on its uh, feet there? Well, you can see on the right-hand picture that two of the claws are facing forward and two backward. Most birds, it's three forward and one backward. Uh, parrots are the other exception, two forward and two backward. All right, well, the reason for this is while it's drilling with a thousand Gs at a, a 15 times per second, it's got the extra ability to hang on to that bark and not knock itself off the tree. as opposed to the other birds with three forward and one backward. Well, that brings us to the tail, because that tail is extra stiff and forms the third part of the tripod, the two sets of claws and the tail, the tripod, to be able to steady itself on that tree. So just think of all of these unique features that 
evolution claims everything happens very slowly, gradual, tiny incremental changes over vast amounts of time. But how could this bird survive if those various systems weren't fully functional? Or else it wouldn't be able to feed itself or survive. And things that die don't evolve. Okay, so that brings us to the last woodpecker slide. This is what happens when you give Red Bull to a woodpecker. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.